Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for tuning in and for your constant support of this podcast. God bless you. In a minute, we're going to get to Elisa Childers. You Christian music fans will know her from Zoe Girl. You fans of apologists that we often have on the podcast, Frank Turek, Natasha Crane, and many others, you will love what she has to say in her book, Another Gospel, if you hadn't read it yet. But um, as uh, our operations manager says, we're going to make history today. I don't think it's history, but I need to apologize right off the top for comments I made on Tuesday that were irresponsible. Um, Yes, in the heat of the moment, as I was passionate about, I, I just hate evil. And I think God hates evil as well. And the promotion of evil that would, in fact, Uh, directly impact people's eternity, and particularly children, and influence them and lead them astray. You know what the Bible says about that. It would be better for that man if a millstone was hung around his neck. So I want to start by saying um, I want to apologize for an irresponsible comment Tuesday about former Olympian Scott Hamilton. I was disappointed in his statements on NBC commending LGBTQ athletes and coming out, them coming out of the closet, so to speak, and inspiring others to do the same. I do, however, stand behind my overall comments on the Beijing Olympics and the Chinese Communist Party's human rights violations and the danger of promoting the LGBTQ ideology on primetime television. Why? Children are watching. Families are watching. So what happened? Friday night, I was flipping through the channels, and I heard comments from former Olympic skater and now NBC analyst Scott Hamilton. He was calling attention to—it was a very cool routine. I caught about a minute, minute and a half of it, a couple's routine. I think they were either from Canada or France. Um, They had uh, rainbow feathers on their shoulders as they were skating around, and he was calling attention to the fact during the routine— that the male skater, and I don't remember his name, recently talked about using his Olympic platform to set an example and encourage LGBTQ athletes around the world to come out and promote those lifestyles as the couple was skating. So Scott Hamilton was speaking highly of that decision, and he said something very close to, and I'm not quoting him, but it's very close to this. After he explained that, what this A gay skater was doing, Scott Hamilton said, this is good for all of us. No, calling evil good and normalizing sin is not good for anyone. So I also stated that it's likely most, not all, male skaters were gay, and perhaps Scott Hamilton might be as well because of what he said. Now, that comment was wrong and irresponsible. I apologize, however I worded it. After further research, he appears to be very supportive now of LGBTQ, uh, but I read that in the past, some would criticize him as homophobic even, simply for telling people not to assume he was gay just because most male figure skaters were. So he's had issues with this, but it seems now, due to his profession and perhaps pressure by the powers that be on NBC, 
Hamilton was strongly encouraged or forced to either conform or comply. But that's not an excuse. Bottom line here, friends, uh, this is a podcast called Stand Up For The Truth, and I stand corrected for what I said, assuming something, or not even assuming something, just blurting it out irresponsibly. And I'm open to further dialogue if you have any questions you want to call in or email. But I'm disappointed with myself, and I'm thankful for a few listeners who called to clarify who I was referring to, because I guess there's a very flamboyant homosexual skater, Johnny Weir, and they thought maybe he was announcing the Olympics that night. No, it was Scott Hamilton. But anyway, God bless him. Uh, Apparently he's married. I hope he's happily married, and I hope that um, God will minister to his heart and give him the strength to be able to uh, just discern uh, appropriate times to talk about issues like that, because like I said, children are watching, and they're being influenced, and we don't need any more examples. Heroes uh, like the Jazz Jennings or the the, uh, Caitlyn Jenners, we don't need any more people uh, like that to influence our children. So now that said, uh, thank you for putting up with with the statements. I'm so blessed. We've been trying to get Elisa Childers on for a long time. She's busy, and I highly recommend her podcast. She was with the group Zoe Girl. She's a wife, mom, author, blogger, and speaker. I will add um, a really uh, respectful or respected apologist. And, um, well, she's got a great book out. I recently read it. I was surprised how good it is, and that's take that comment however you want. But it was a phenomenal book, an, another gospel. I love her approach and what the issues she addresses. It's a very important book if you haven't read it. She's been published at the Gospel Coalition, Crosswalk, The Stream, For Every Mom, Decision Magazine, and The Christian Post. And her book, the subtitle is, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. And it's become a bestseller. And we've been talking a lot for years about progressive Christianity, which is uh, neck and neck with the cult of liberalism. So, Elisa Childers, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you today. Yes, and thank you for your patience as I had to get through that apology on my statements. But um, I'm sure you've never said anything that uh, you've regretted, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are all human, aren't we? Yes, from the stage. I mean, years of of touring with Zoe Girl. Um, let, Let me tell you this. I am so glad, so glad. I have thanked the Lord for this many times that... Social media did not exist when I was a musician. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I said some things, too, from the stage that I go, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that wasn't recorded. But um, mm. And now you have a podcast. So it's really amazing to see your journey as someone who, um, you know, has been in Christian radio and uh, has played your music. And we still play your music on occasion, and Zoe Girl, I mean, and... Uh, We're just thankful for people. I was telling you this before we got on the air. Thankful for people like you and John Cooper because we've been very disappointed by many, not most, but many Christian musicians or artists or people that get sucked into the business of Christian music in Nashville or or whatever and... um, kind of compromise. So let's start right there before we get a little bit into your background, Elisa, and definitely want to talk about your book, Another Gospel, but just your observations through the years, and you can you don't need, even need to condense this because we've got time. I just want people to be introduced to you and, and how you matured, but your observations on the Christian music scene and how it's changed since you were a part of it. 
Well, it's, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I don't even think it's the same industry. Mm. Uh, It has changed in so many ways from just a structural standpoint to a spiritual standpoint. When Zoe Girl was making records back in early 2000 through about 2007 or 8, uh, Napster and remember Napster and like this was before iTunes. There was like this little Napster phase where people were downloading music for free. It yep. basically crashed the industry, mm. and then iTunes came about. And I mean, we existed before all of that and before social media. So back then, it was like it, it was just a completely different industry. Mm. There was a lot more money in it, I think, uh, as far as what they would invest in marketing and photo shoots and things like that. It was just a whole different world. And I think even back then, spiritually, there were some serious problems with the industry because around the time Zoe Girl was making music, that's when all the big secular companies started buying up the Christian record labels. Hmm. And so we literally were signed by Sparrow Records. Wow. By the time we ended, EMI was our record label, and today I get my 18-cent check from (laughs) Capital. (laughs) <laughs> so so it, it really went through a massive evolution just even during the time I was there and, and, and just in the few years beyond that, because now, uh, as far as I, there may, I think, I'm not sure about integrity anymore, but mm. records, but from my understanding, I don't think there's any, but maybe one or two smaller Christian record labels that are not owned by major secular companies. And mm. so you can imagine the trickle down effect of what that's going to mean for who people are answering to, what are the things that people are going to be focusing on. So even when I was there, there was a real battle between the business and ministry side. Now, I haven't been in it in a while, but my my hunch is that it's really swung over toward decisions being made for more on the business side. And I think we see that reflected in the the music that's produced and the the, uh, spiritual public comments of many contemporary Christian artists. So Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah, it's definitely something to think about and and to talk about. And this affects worship music as well. And in American churches, what kind of music or worship we are doing before the service, um, it is a business. And this is the sad part of it, Elisa. And and um, I think people like Rich Mullins used to speak out against this, the commercializ- commercialization mm. of the industry and, and music. And in fact, I want to just... This is just astounding to me. I'll never forget this. He he didn't he took a salary. He had a board of directors that supposedly governed his music, but he took the same amount of money every year, no matter how many records he sold. I found that to be astounding, and it was the mm. average um, salary that uh, an American was making at that time, which I think this was in nineteen nineties, mid nineteen nineties. I think it was like twenty seven, twenty eight thousand a year. He was, I mean, this is the guy, this is the awesome God guy, right? Sing your praise to the Lord. He wrote that. Amy Grant made it famous, but he wrote it. And he he took the same salary, from what I understand. Just so people like that, they really uh, raise the bar for others. So the the industry as as a whole has changed, as you said. What is your impression on how the Christian music industry, the popularity of Christian music, and the entertaining factor, which shouldn't be even in in consideration when it comes to how you worship at church, but it is because we want to keep people in the seat. So what's your uh, impression of how the Christian music industry and the entertainment aspect has impacted worship on a Sunday morning? 
Mm, oh my goodness, what a huge <laughs> can you're asking me to open right here. Oh, come on. Stand up for the <laughs> truth, Alisa. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, toward the end of the time that Zoe Girl was together, we had, I think we had made three or four, I can't even remember, studio albums by that point. And because of the collapse of the industry, because of how things were changing so quickly, everything was moving toward worship. Because at that time, as far as I remember, um, things like the passion, remember the passion music when that first started, it, it sort of took off with Chris Tomlin and all these people. Yes. And so that was really the only thing that was selling at the time. And so I remember getting a lot of pressure from the label to basically, they basically gave us an ultimatum. They said, either you make a worship record or we're going to just, you know, call it a day. And that isn't the only reason that, certainly it's not the only reason that Zoe Girl, you know, we ended our run. Uh, we, I was really burnt out. I, you know, I, I won't even put that on the other two girls. I think they would have probably wanted to go on. Uh, but we made the decision together. We're still good friends. There was nothing like infighting or any of that that caused it to end. But I just couldn't do it anymore, mm. frankly, and I, I had to get out. And so when that ultimatum was passed down, it was sort of an easy way to say, you know, and, and for me, it was an integrity issue. I am a worship leader. I'm a worshiper first. I mean, that before I'm an entertainer or anything else. Yes. And so for me to to do that would have been a compromise because we would have just been doing that because that's what you do. You make a worship album now. And so for me, it was just like, you know, I think this is a good time to, to call it quits. But the reason I bring that up is because that obviously is where the industry went. And then if you marry that with the, the industry's impetus owned by these big secular companies, secular companies don't care what your worship music is talking about. Exactly. They just want to see that you're selling, yep. right? So that even if there were people high up in the Christian side of it who were trying to maintain integrity, and I'm not saying that they don't have integrity. I knew lots of executives and people who had a lot of integrity, and I knew some who didn't. But, you know, that aside, even just the pressure to make certain decisions and to make little compromises to make sure that you could answer to the higher-ups, I'm sure, was a huge motivation in steering the ship toward that worship and then what that actual worship music would become. And so I think that that's why, uh, like I even remember being in, in Zoe Girl and being really pressured by even lyrically, whatever kind of message was really popular among Christians, that's what they wanted us to write songs about. It wasn't like, hey, let's, in a prophetic sense, let's call the church back to truth. It was never like that. It was always like, I remember um, our song, um, what was it called? Um, it's not a, a, about, about you, was mm -hmm. our song. And the whole chorus was, it's not about me, it's all about you. That was the message that was selling. Now, I don't think that message would sell today, because in culture, we have so much of that live your truth, you know, you don't, there's nothing outside of yourself that you need to complete you. You just have to dig down in your own soul and find the pot of gold that's waiting for you there. And I, I do see some of that reflected in some, I want to be very careful to say not all, right. but in some of the worship music that I think there's some great worship music being produced. So I don't want to just paint this with a broad brush. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think that influence is always there. There's going to be, even for the ones who are standing strong and writing good songs, that pressure, that tension hmm. is going to be there if they're on a label that's owned by a secular company. 
And I think that we see that when, when you, when you open up your iTunes and you put in worship and then there's a song about me, (laughs) you know, basically, (laughs) yes. um, That's why that's happening because that's the, that's the message that's selling. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a very dangerous thing when people, and I'm not saying everybody's doing this, but when certain artists or executives are pressuring artists to write songs based on what's selling rather than based on what the Bible is calling us to as Christians in regard to worship. We're speaking with Elisa Childers, author, blogger, speaker. Another Gospel is the book we're going to get to in the second segment in just a few minutes. Elisa, have you also noticed, this is my perception in the last decade or more, that a lot of not only contemporary Christian songs, but worship music we sing in church on Sunday morning, they're, they're, they are about us and what God can do for us, how he is a good God for us, and he gives us whatever, and he, mm. he blesses us, and I am because of him. Have you noticed that, too, or am I just kind of being too picky? I think that... I, I, I lost my thought. Reframe the question one more time. I'm so sorry. I was. I That's had this okay. great thing. I was just about to say. <laughs> it was going to be so profound. Um, so, so it's because a lot of music is self uh, focused on us and not directed at God and pointing at Jesus. It's really at what He has done for us, what He can do for us, and He's. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Sure. So, I think we are still recovering from the mass infection of the prosperity gospel Mm. that really leaked even more deeply into evangelicalism than I think many of us realize in the 80s and 90s. Mm. And I think we're still recovering from that. I think that even for for people who recognize it and are saying, yes, this is a false gospel, there are still those leftover sort of hauntings of this idea that God is this magic vending machine. And I I think this is why we're seeing so many people go into deconstruction or into progressive Christianity because, and I've seen this, their prayers weren't answered. They asked Mm. God to heal the sick and it didn't happen. And somehow that was connected to their faith in the sense that now I'm questioning whether God is real or whether he's good or whether he keeps his promises. And I think it's largely due to how long it took Hmm. Uh, essentially gate, evangelical gatekeepers to spot that as a heresy, call it out, and begin to root it out of the Church. I think it's, I think it's probably going to take a few more years yes. to get that fully out of us. I agree, and it doesn't help that we've got best-selling authors writing about having your best life now. And and, yeah, they're still promoting. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. The, the leaders that are promoting those messages are not backing off from it. Now, no. thankfully, we've had a lot of people come up in opposition to it, but for a long time, it was in, in the broader—I'm sure there were always people calling it out, maybe in the Reformed Church or something like that, but in broader evangelicalism, right. people weren't really willing to use the word heresy or to say, look, this has to end until more recent years, I think, maybe mm-hmm. last 10 years. So, Elisa, when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about growing up with uh, your dad being Chuck Gerard and our more seasoned listeners—do you like how I put that? Our more seasoned listeners in our audience would really appreciate hearing— Growing up in a Christian home with someone like Chuck Gerard is out there doing his music and how that influenced you. Also, the topics, you're not afraid to, to uh, tackle anything on your podcast, Christian nationalism, deconstruction, and a lot more. But we've got Elisa Childers here. Her book is Another Gospel. We'll dive into that when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. 
Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Alisa Childers is our guest. Please, guys, if you haven't read this book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity, get it. And by the way, Alisa, uh, you had me at Lee Strobel, Greg Kokel, Frank Turek. <laughs> I mean, the people that <laughs> Melissa Kruger, Randy Alcorn, Sean McDowell. These are people that endorsed the book. Lee Strobel wrote the foreword and I love A Case for Christ. Also thought they did a great job with the movie as well. But let's talk about growing up with Chuck Gerard. You know him as dad. How, how did that, did, were you sheltered in a way? Did you hear only the good things about the Christian music scene or, or just describe your upbringing and did that provide a foundation for you as you oh, grew older? That's a great question. Oh, yes, it did. And no, I didn't just hear the good. In fact, um, well, I'll get, I'll, let me tell this little bit of a background so people have some context if sure. they don't know exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. So my dad was in a group called Love Song, which was uh, arguably the first Christian rock band to really receive nationwide success as far as um, recognition and and, uh, acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And certainly others uh, around that same time, a lot of things were popping up at the same time. But then after a while, when Love Song sort of parted ways, my dad became a solo artist. I mean, I have a, a photograph of him on the cover of CCM Magazine as a solo artist. So he was uh, actually at the height of his success when he believed the Lord was telling him to leave the industry and go independent. Now, this was back before it was cool to do that. (laughs) So back then, if you didn't have a record deal, you were kind of considered as, you know, a second-class citizen, so to speak, in the, the Christian music world. But my dad did that out of obedience to the Lord, believing that where the industry was heading was not a good place. So I grew up uh, being eyes wide open about what motivations might be within the Christian music industry. Not at all cynical. My dad had many friends in the industry, always maintained those relationships. There was never like a a hard line drawn. He just was doing what he believed God was calling him to do. And interestingly, what that also entailed was him going into the arena of worship, which was not even a thing back then. Hmm. So this is before it was popular to be a worship. In fact, back then, it was sort of considered if you if you kind of can't make it as an artist, you just you become a worship leader. That was sort of the the thing you did. So my dad dove headlong into both of those arenas, leaving the industry and going independent and taking up uh, primary focus on worship. And I'm so thankful that I grew up in that type of context because it really taught me, first of all, you don't have to depend on an industry or a business to fulfill the calling that God has placed on your life. God has been so faithful to my dad all of his life. He still goes out and sings, hmm. and God has taken care of him. And, you know, you mentioned Rich Mullins. Yes. Uh, very, in a similar sense, my dad did something similar in that he never charged anyone ever to bring him in to sing. Wow. He lived off love offerings my entire life. So they would just pass the plate, and he made what he made. And I remember there being times when money was so scarce, we and then my dad would get some donation or a check or something that would cover it. And God always provided. So those were the deep lessons of faith I mm. learned as a child growing up in that 
type of environment. And then, of course, my dad also, you mentioned being sheltered. One thing that was always important to my dad was to do what he called street ministry. And what that entailed was going with groups of Christians to places like Hollywood Boulevard or Skid Row in Los Angeles or just right there in Manhattan uh, in various places and setting up, doing music and sharing the gospel And I grew up doing that. So I think that in so many ways I was not sheltered because I would regularly have conversations with people who were atheists or agnostics or Wiccans even and Satanists and sharing the gospel with these people, seeing the light and the darkness so opposed to each other, which was an important part of my spiritual formation, I think, because I really witnessed how powerful the gospel was and how dark the darkness was. And I wonder if that's not something that so many people who end up in a type of deconstruction didn't have a foundation of, of being able to experience. And mm. it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I've given it a lot of thought, but, you know, and I'm not necessarily right on all of it, but I know for me that was a hugely stabilizing factor in my faith that really kept me from going over the edge into atheism when my faith was really, really challenged, and I, I was in a dark night of doubt that was um, just really profound. Well, you, it sounds like, especially going out street witnessing, it sounds like you also got some invaluable lessons on how to defend the faith and how to give an answer to people who, re, you know, re, uh, they don't have, they have their objections, right? Some people think, oh, what about evil, this problem of evil? What about if, you know, is God really good or what is the Bible inspired? All, you know, all, you've, you've heard them all. You're an apologist. Mm-hmm. So it helps to go out street witnessing to hear some of that. And I'm sure that's really had an impact on you as well. And I wanted to ask you about one of your chapters. And, you know, forgive me, I don't remember what chapter it was where you had the group of kids you were teaching at church uh, about how to create a religion. And, and the point you got to is just very profound in that. What could have been the early disciples and the apostles' motivation for following Jesus? Was it money? Was it power? Was it sex? Was it fame? So share that experience, because I found that to be just so good, and I think our listeners really appreciate that story. Thank you. It's it's kind of a, a funny story, because it was a real risk I took. I Before <laughs> I did apologetics on a more, I guess, you know, public or professional, whatever you want to call it, uh, platform— I would do these five or six week series, even up to 10 weeks sometimes with local churches and youth groups. And so we, I, we did everything from middle school to high school to college. And, uh, you know, when you're studying apologetics, you study these arguments of like historical reliability with the Gospels and you learn like, you know, these guys had nothing to gain. Why would, why, first of all, why would somebody want to just fabricate a religion out of nothing and try to get people to follow it would be their motivation. And then what would cause that motivation to get knocked down? Like, when would they recant if it wasn't true? Mm. And so I took a huge risk with this one group, and they were a a real particularly perky and spunky group. And so I called, I said, I need four volunteers. And I called four boys, and I kind of made a joke like, sorry, girls, in the ancient world, you didn't get to make up a religion. It was just the guys. So (laughs) I brought these guys up just, you know, trying to show them even the view of women back then. But I said, okay, I chose four different guys. And I said, now, I want all of you to think about a reason why you would invent a religion. If you knew it wasn't true, but you just wanted to get people to believe it. Like, I'm not talking about you, you know, really believing this. I'm talking about you know it's not true, and you want to convince people to follow you. Why would you even do that in the first place? 
And I was hoping that they would mention things like money and fame and power and sex and all this. And it was literally one by one. They said all those things. And I was like, okay, this is working out great. <laughs> and and um, so I think somebody brought up popularity and another person brought up um, wanting to have power and influence. And uh, and so they, they said all the right reasons. And I think they forgot the, the girl angle. And I said, well, what about girls, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't guys do this to, to get girls? Mm. And they were all like, oh, yeah. So we had our four reasons. And then I started to say, okay, now I want you to think about uh, you're not actually getting the power that you thought you would. In fact, they're actually throwing you guys in prison for saying these things. So that's not working out for you. And so I looked at the kid that said that. I said, are you still going to stick with this? And he was kind of like, no, not if I'm going to jail for it. And I said, okay, you know, you can sit down. And then I said, now imagine that um, you're actually not getting the fame you wanted. In fact, it's the opposite. A lot of people are telling lies about you. They're saying, uh, of course, this kind of evolved later, but, you know, they're saying, oh, these Christians, they're, they're, eat, they're cannibals, they're eating flesh and drinking blood, you know, misunderstanding our communion. Mm-hmm. And I said, and they're actually really talking about you like you are really out of the cool group. Like these are the, the outcasts, these are the nerds or the whatever. And I looked at that kid and I said, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't keep saying it. And I said, okay, you can sit down. <laughs> and, and we talked about the, you know, the girl angle. I'm like, you know, and nobody really loves, uh, you know, a, a broke. Cause I pointed out too, you're not making money. Money was one of the things you're not really making the money you thought you're going to make, you know, are girls really going to go for a broke beat up jailbird? I don't know. And it was really, it was a really fascinating experiment because all the things I had studied were playing out in reality with these kids and uh, so, yeah, so I put that book and that story in the book to il- illustrate how we deeply all kind of know these things. These aren't just propositional arguments that apologists are giving. Like, we know this stuff deep down. Mm. We do. Um, so thank you for, for writing that experience. I think that will help a lot of readers like myself who have sometimes uh, difficulties processing and, and absorbing things as they read. I have to stop I highlight, and then I have to think about it, so I'm not a fast reader at all. But that was a very good, uh, helpful analogy. Um, I want to jump to something you write in the book, and I know we're, we're kind of moving around to different topics here, Elisa, but since uh, you cover so many of these things in Another Gospel and on your excellent podcast, by the way, um, I just I know you won't mind us jumping around. So we talked about worship. Um, uh, you know, I want to talk about altar calls. You don't go into depth on that, and— uh, how people can go forward and say a magic prayer, those are my words, and, mm-hmm. and be, quote, saved. Um, so we're, we're, we've got to bring up the topic of true or false conversion. Um, mm-hmm. So altar calls. I read in your book, and I believe you were talking about uh, what Norm Geisler had written, if I'm not mistaken, um, the essentials one must believe in order to be saved. And he lists eight. I just want to share those with the audience now, and that's on page 232 of your book. Um, Human depravity, I am a sinner. God's unity, there is one God. The necessity of grace, we are saved by grace. Christ's deity, Jesus is God. Christ's humanity, Christ is man. Christ's atoning death, he died for my sins. Christ's bodily resurrection, he rose from the dead. And the necessity of faith, that we must believe. So share with us your observations. You've 
not only I think you came forward due to an altar call when you were young, but when you were out on the road with Zoe Girl, you also gave a lot of altar calls. And I'm sure you've seen all kinds of different responses, but we're concerned about the lack of follow up or discipleship that the churches had. And we're not really sure, uh, a lot of us, that people really understand, whether they're children or adults, what they're signing on to when they come forward. So share your thoughts on altar calls and conversion. Yeah, thank you for that question. I So I want to be really clear going into my comments here that I am not against altar calls. Mm-hmm. Chrissy from Zoe Girl gave her heart to Jesus. She repented and trusted in Jesus at a harvest crusade. Mm-hmm. She went forward to the altar call, and she is walking with Jesus today. So please, I hope nobody will hear me say that there's no good fruit from those things. I know many Christians who got saved at a Billy Graham crusade or a Harvest crusade, or they walked. My dad got saved in an altar call, although interestingly, I think part of his story is he actually didn't walk forward. He was sitting in the back, and and it was like this guy, he just had this encounter with God and repented and put trust in Jesus in the back row. Hmm. So you don't always have to walk, you know, an altar call. I, I, I understand the impetus toward an altar call because you're giving people a public, an opportunity to be public about their decision. Yes. And I think there's an important element there that sometimes we miss. We think it can just be this private thing. No, you have to stand publicly for Christ. Confess with your mouth. So not against altar calls. What I am against is what I perceived, uh, again, in that 80s, 90s, early 2000s sort of church culture thing, where there was a lot of manipulation. Hmm. You know, you have the guy saying, well, wait, just one more, one more. (laughs) And it's like sometimes you just think, in fact, I think there was a Babylon Bee article about this, like somebody will go forward just to put the altar call out of its misery. (laughs) Like, can we all go home already? (laughs) And this is not how Jesus did it. Mm. I, I've been thinking about this. I, in my next book, I wrote about this. If you look at Jesus' interactions with people, it's almost as if on many occasions he's trying to talk them out of it. Look at the rich young ruler. This guy comes to Jesus, ready to follow. What should I do to be saved? And Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, go sell everything you have. And of course, that's not a prescription for everybody to go sell all their stuff. But Jesus was pinpointing the idol in that guy's life. Mm. That's what he had to lay down to follow Jesus. He couldn't have both. And I think that that's the message sometimes that gets missed in altar calls when we're numbers focused, you know, when we want to collect all the cards so we can, uh, you know, celebrate with everybody all the conversions we have. Well, my question is, how many of those were actual authentic conversions? Because if people think they're just going up to the front and saying a magic prayer to get a get-out-of-hell-free card, that's not salvation. Amen. And I think our churches are filled with unconverted people who call themselves Christians. They like Christianity. They might even believe all of the, the eight things that you said, but they haven't done that eighth thing. They ha- I mean, demons believe all of those things you mentioned. They haven't, in a, in a sense, gotten on the boat, right? It's mm. like That's how I like to think about faith. You can believe a lot of propositions. I can believe that an airplane will get me to my destination, but I haven't really put active trust and faith in that belief to like, get on the airplane. So I think there's a lot of Christians in the pews who haven't gotten on the airplane personally. And so that's where I think the danger can lie with altar calls. Uh, if, the, if it's not done... Well, and certainly you don't have to have an altar call to get saved. There's no magic prayer you, you pray. It's believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. We, we, we know all this. Um, 
And so people's stories are going to vary. But I do think there was this phenomenon and probably still is in many places where people are doing this in a manipulative sense. Yes. And that's not going to produce an authentic conversion. Amen. We agree. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Um, we are very concerned about the state of the church. And and it might be shocking to maybe some of our newer listeners to hear us talk about people that are in the pews or in the comfy seats in churches around the country that are not even converted. Uh, but they're there. At least they're there. But you know what I mean? So we're, we're just yeah. disappointed in the lack of. And this, I think a lot of this falls on, on the pulpit. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so one of the frustrations that I've had with just church culture in general in America is a lack of uh, expository preaching, mm-hmm. right? This We've moved to this topical type of approach where we want to take something from culture and turn it into a sermon. Now, I'm not saying cultural examples can't be relevant. Uh, uh, you know, my, my daughter loves Marvel movies, and that I view that as a great inroad to start talking about spiritual things. You know, to my daughter, why do you think everybody resonates with Tony Stark giving his life for the world? Why, why mm. does that resonate with us as something good? And just, you know, we can use things like that as doorways. But, you know, this whole, you know, finding the gospel in Marvel movies, sermon series, one through five, you know, we got to stop with that junk. We have to teach through the Bible. And what that does is that will... I, I've, I listen to Alistair Begg a lot, and it's interesting when he'll get to a different, difficult passage, he'll say, well, I don't have the option of skipping this because <laughs> we are going straight through. Praise God. And that's what it does. It saves you from being able to tuck away the little verses you don't like yeah. and highlight the ones or overemphasize the ones that you do like. And we have to take in the whole counsel of Scripture as Christians. And I think that, man, if I could just snap my fingers and change one thing about the American church— it would be to plead with churches, just get back to teaching through the Bible, Amen. because that is that is the only thing that's going to keep us uh, on the straight path toward pleasing the Lord, right? We have to get His Word inside of us, and we can't just be doing sermons that are proof texting some sort of topic we want to or point we want to make that week. So I, this is a this is a huge thing for me. I just oh my prayer, God, please call pastors back to. Mm to expository preaching with good exegesis. Yes. Amen. Thank you, Elisa, for saying that. By the way, the book, friends, is called Another Gospel. We'll talk more about that when we get back with Elisa Childers. Uh, We've got to talk about deconstruction. It's a process of questioning or doubting or ultimately rejecting certain aspects of the Christian faith. How do professing Christians actually do that in good conscience? We have to talk about that. And a lot more when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Keep it right here. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. You can get the book, Another Gospel, at elisachilders.com. You can get it on Amazon and other um, outlets as well. And you can also check out her brand new blog, it's called, No, Martin Luther Was Not a Deconstructionist. And so, Elisa, that brings us to this next topic then. Um, you hear that word and you go, man, of course, that's what they're trying to do to America too. But that's what a lot of people, and they seem to have come from within, which Jude warns about. Uh, he says, you know, I had to write you to contend, you know, just contend for the faith because certain men— 
you know, slipped in among you. They are godless men. They change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And that's Jude 1, 3, and 4. Of course, they also deny his word, whether it's inerrant, whether the scriptures are inspired. So let's, first of all, define deconstruction. Could you help us with that, Elisa? Yes, so that's the million-dollar question right now. And I mean, like, Christian Twitter and Christian news headlines and outlets are all—there is a battle Mm. over the definition of this word right now. And I think that that was really brought to light. You mentioned John Cooper. This was brought to light when John— on stage at Winter Jam, mm-hmm. said something about declaring war on the idolatrous movement of Christian deconstructionism or something something like that. And half of the church was like, yeah, go, John. And then half the church is like, what's he talking about? Yep. I feel attacked. And mm-hmm. the whole week, this week, everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. So really thankful that happened, because what it's revealed is that people are defining that word in radically different ways. Now, I have been steeped in the deconstruction movement for a long time, but really in a real focused way over the past maybe month or so as a part of a research for a book I'm writing on deconstruction. So the second he said that, I was like, amen, in mm-hmm. my heart, like, that's right, we, this is a spiritual battle. But what a lot of people heard was, man, if you're going through doubt, if you're just questioning your beliefs, you know, John Cooper's <laughs> declaring war on you. And that's not what he was talking about. Exactly. And that's because a lot of people are defining deconstruction as simply changing your mind or maybe the daily process that Christians are called to, to refine our beliefs based on the authority of Scripture, right? So if something we believe doesn't line up with that, we want to reject that. That's what a lot of people are calling deconstruction. I'm arguing, let's not call that deconstruction, because deconstruction is a postmodern word that comes, it was born out of the philosophy of a guy named Jacques Derrida from the 60s, who was a postmodernist, who didn't believe that texts or that words could be pinned down to singular, singular meaning. So it really launched this whole idea of relativism, truth mm. even just being relative to what you think it is. And that is what the deconstruction movement is based upon. It, now, a lot of pe- a lot, I want to acknowledge a lot of people in deconstruction movement will deny that there's a connection there, but I don't think you can deny it, because if you study the movement, they're refining their beliefs based on what their hearts and preferences, and uh, I want to be charitable here, their, per- their deeply held conscience is telling them is morally good or right, oppressive or not oppressive. And in, in many cases, in most cases, I would say almost all cases in the movement, the Bible is the first thing to go because the Bible is viewed as oppressive to women and to uh, gay people or something like that. So what we have to understand, as you can tell, I'm passionate about this. The mm-hmm. definition of the word deconstruction is so important, and it, how I define it in my book, uh, Another Gospel, is um, I'm trying to find my definition here because I want to get it exactly. Sure. Um, it's in the context of faith, deconstruction is a process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting. Those things go together, mm-hmm. the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way into atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. And then in the article, I said, I would add that it rarely retains any vestiges of actual Christianity. Now, very quickly, I want to explain why that's the case. In the deconstruction movement, you will hear people say, no, that is what I'm doing. I'm trying, you know, if they retain the Christian title, they're saying, I want to refine my beliefs based on 
on, uh, you know, I want to disenculturate uh, or, and I'm all for that. Like, yeah, you want to get rid of maybe cultural beliefs that were added that aren't biblical. Mm-hmm. But what we have to understand is that in that movement, the, what they're categorizing as cultural beliefs are things like penal substitutionary atonement, um, biblical sexuality and marriage, gender, gender roles. These are things that they're putting into the category of, oh, that's just cultural. That's, mm. that's the, the product of white supremacy and a white supremacist theology. I'm talking about penal substitution. That's what they mean. So you can even hear someone from the deconstruction movement say something like, no, no, I'm reforming. I'm taking my beliefs, and I, I do have a high view of Scripture. But if you really dig down what they mean by uh, you know, cultural ideas, they're talking about core doctrines of Christianity that they're rejecting and dismantling. Mm-hmm. So I'm arguing we should not be using this word to describe a process of reformation or restoration or even healing or yes. exposing— uh, you know, false doctrines or any of that. We have biblical words and categories for those things. Deconstruction has postmodern baggage attached to it. And I just, I, I think John was right. Yes. I think we shouldn't be using that word. Um, and there is a movement, and it is insidious, and it is end up in deconversion for most people. And for those that doesn't end in deconversion, it ends in a version of Christianity that is not actual Christianity. Amen. And in at gotquestions.org, it says, in practice, deconstruction almost always acts as a polite cover for demolition. Modern deconstruction usually means replacing uncomfortable tenets with culturally or personally popular ideas. There's that that idea again of, of you going for what's popular, trying to please man rather than pleasing God. But I want to quote in Cooper's article, which I know you have a relationship with John. Um, uh, we do, too. He's a friend of this ministry. We're going to hopefully have him on in a few months here. But I love his stand, and I'll just say I wish more uh, Christian musicians and artists would take stands like him or at least speak the way he's speaking and not back away from these important ideas. But he says true deconstructionism leads to rejecting absolute truth, which is a core tenet of postmodernism. He says, I fear the term deconstruction is being manipulated to soft pedal something into the faith that we should not allow. Elisa, your thoughts on what John is sharing? John is 100% on the money. In fact, I was joking with him. We were texting back and forth a little bit this week, and I, I said, you know, what's taken me months and years of intellectual research you you came to with just a beard and the Holy Spirit. Like, come on, man. <laughs> no, and I don't mean to downplay. John is actually very, very well-read yep. and very intellectual in many ways. Uh, but, you know, it's just kind of like, what the heck is happening? Why are, I'm, I've had the hardest time understanding why anybody has a problem who is a Christian with what he is saying here. Because if we're Christians, we have to understand people are using the word deconstruction really alternatively with the word, I mean, that's what we have a word called apostasy for this. Yes. And, and so what I think what I would also want to mention, though, is that if there are Christians who are in deep times of doubt and struggle, I was there. I, I actually did deconstruct over 10 years ago. It's what I write about in my book. And I'm, I'm sort of starting to poke my head up and say this now. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I still have wounds, and mm. I'm still healing and recovering from that. 
Don't deconstruct if you're a Christian. Reform, yes. You know, get the cultural stuff out of your Christianity that's not biblical. But if you're, if the scripture in the, as, as, you know, with a, a understanding and interpretation of trying to get to the author's intent, if that's you, then you're not in deconstruction. You're reforming. But for those people who are hurting and they've gone through spiritual abuse, I personally think someone who's come out of a maybe a cultish background or, or an experience with spiritual abuse, if they go into the deconstruction movement uh, that publicly shames anybody that opposes it, by the way, it's a very aggressive movement, they're not going to find the healing that they need because they're going to be given answers and cures that won't cure mm. the, the actual wound. And that's so so when people and I know John feels that way, too. So when people like us are saying deconstruction is bad, we're not saying people who are doubting or going through difficult and horrible times are bad. Exactly. We're saying this ideology that's trying to come after you to give you an answer that's not biblical and it's not really going to heal you. That's what we're saying. We actually it's like we're fighting for those people. But people aren't hearing it that way because Mm-mm. they co-opted that word to mean something it really, I, I think, does not mean. Thank you, Elisa. The book, by the way, Another Gospel, is available at elisachilders.com. You're writing a new book, which will be out in the fall, uh, God willing, on this very important topic of deconstruction. Let me ask you this. what, uh, How did you come to the decision to quote some of these, what I would consider uh, radicals or progressives or those on the Christian left. We started this podcast in 2010 because of the emergent church and its mm. leaders and the apostasy within the church. So Brian McLaren and, and so many others you quote, and and if uh, the average person looking at the quotes would not understand it if they didn't read your book, but what caused you to make that decision? Well, part of the story I tell in the book is that uh, after Zoe Girl came off the road, my husband and I started attending a church just right here in the middle of heart of Middle Tennessee where we're living, and it was an evangelical, non-denominational church. And part of my story is that the pastor, who was already deconstructed, I found out later, I didn't mm. know that at the time, <laughs> he, he was deconstructed, and he was actively trying to get people in his congregation into deconstruction so that he could convert them to progressive Christianity. Now, this was, like you mentioned, I, Brian McLaren's Generous Orthodoxy had just come out, and so he invited me to be a part of a smaller group, and in this group, he basically deconstructed everything I had believed about Jesus and God and the Bible, and I didn't have—I was completely unprepared for it. It, it was like a complete blindside. And so after my husband and I left the church a few months later, I was propelled into a deconstruction, Hmm. time of deconstruction. And it was the darkest, most indescribably painful time of my life. And thankful, I'm so thankful for God's faithfulness to just grab me by the hand and walk me back out of that. But the reason I wanted to quote all the progressives and talk about that is because that church went on later, many years later, to rebrand themselves as a progressive Christian community. And that was the first time I'd heard that phrase, progressive Christianity. But then I started to see it pop up everywhere. I saw blog posts shared by progressive Christians. And so after my faith was stable, I began to study the movement. I read progressive Christian books. I listened to their podcasts. I read their blog posts. I followed or, you know, quietly lurked and followed along on social media to try to understand what this movement was all about. So the book, Another Gospel, is really meant for Christians. It's not meant to really persuade a progressive Christian. It's meant 
to give committed Christians language for the red flags they see in some of these things. So if you're in a church and your pastor is starting to really emphasize the human part of the Bible over the divine, or even talking about the Bible as a human book that was written about God, Hmm. that's a huge red flag that that there's a progressive Christian influence there. So I'm trying to give people language to be able to not only spot it, but answer it biblically. Thank you. And these are people that uh, some of them consider the Bible like any other great work, uh, any other ancient book, uh, or religion, or, or other things that were in the past that need to be brought up to speed, so to speak, to keep up with culture, or that's you know, modernism. But Alisa, um, by the way, thank you for tackling some of the topics you do on your podcast. I love the one with uh, Neil Shenvey on Christian nationalism. I encourage people to go check that out. Your interviews with John Cooper. And uh, anyway, so one thing I want to ask you, one of the most popular comments or questions we get um, is people struggling to find a good church in their area, sound doctrine, the whole counsel of God, unashamed of the gospel and all the, the, the things that, that it tackles from social, uh, cultural issues, which are moral issues, right, political issues, moral issues, um, and not afraid to talk about what's hap- Bible prophecy and what's happening in our world. So what advice, as we wrap up the podcast with you here today, uh, can you give to some of our listeners who are—we've got people from Canada, we've got people from Mexico, from different parts of this country that are in places where they just can't seem to find a great church with that kind of a leader or pastor? It's very difficult right now, and so the advice I give to people is look first on the website. Read the belief statement. If the belief statement is ambiguous, then it's going to be ambiguous Mm. at the church. And there's probably not a real strong, stable structure. It's like music. If we don't have the—think about complicated classical music. we got to have the, the, the framework there. Look at the belief statement. Ask lots of questions. Meet with your pastor. Don't flinch. Ask, what is your view of the Bible? Do you believe that Jesus' sacrifice was substitutionary? Important questions to ask, and then be led of the Spirit from there. Elisa, mm. thank you so much. The book is called Another Gospel. And thank you for your time today and your great podcast. God bless you. We appreciate your work. Thank you so much. Tomorrow we've got Dr. J.B. Hickson back with us talking about Christians and the government-run school system and what's happening in that venue. And right now I've just got to say goodbye. Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.